on Sunday, November 4th, one of the great present-day Zen masters died. Bernie Glassman died after several years of failing health, a stroke, and then certain further illnesses. Bernie, also known as Tetsigan, before he disrobed and ceased using that name, was a Dharma successor of Maizumi Roshi, and I would say one of the great Zen masters in the current period of time, certainly in America. I first met Bernie in 1976. I um, had been living at New York Zando at the time, and he was the head monk in at ZCLA, Zen Center of Los Angeles. I had read about some workshops in Zen and Judaism that he and Don Singer were putting on, Rabbi Don Singer were putting on together at CCLA, and I wrote him about those. In those days, of course, there was no internet and phones were uh, less accessible in those ancient days. Um, and he wrote back, and we communicate. We communicated in that way for a while. And in, in July, he came for the opening of Daibasatsu Zendo Zen Monastery in upstate New York on July 4th. There was a sashin before that, so he came along with Maizumi Roshi and some others. And let us say the rest is history, which I won't go into here. But I got to practice with him and study with him and live at ZCLA for a number of years. He eventually left and he became a Zen teacher, um, independent, and he moved to New York to begin a Zen center, and in, this was in the 1980s, and then continued various activities. What he's probably most well known for is in the late, mid to late 1990s, he founded what's known as the Zen peacemaker order. He, at that point, he disrobed, meaning he ceased functioning as a ordained Zen teacher and functioned as a lay Zen teacher from then on till 
the present day. I don't want to talk too much about his history, but I want to focus on what he called the three tenets of Zen peacemaker. In a way, the phrase peacemaker is a very nice phrase. We all want peace. And uh, you can say the whole of Zen practice is about being at peace. Being at peace. Some of you might be familiar with the very nice case of the second Chinese ancestor in Zen, Weka, coming to Bodhidharma, the founder of Zen in China, and saying, my mind is not at peace. Please, Master, set my mind at peace. See, we all want this peace, peace of mind, peace of body, peace of life, P-E-A-C-E. We want to be at peace in our life and in our circumstances and in our functioning. Another way of practice. And this is exactly what Waker, the second ancestor, was saying. I'm not at peace. Please. My understanding is that you can help me with this. And Of course, at first he didn't pay any attention to him, pushed him away. You're not capable of this. You're not ready for this. But when he showed his determination, Bodhidharma said, bring forth your mind and I'll put it at peace and wake up delved deeply into this and finally came to him and said, I've searched for mind. I searched for mind heart and ultimately it's, I find it unattainable. So Bodhidharma said, so I've put your mind at peace. If we can grasp that, then we've grasped what it is to allow our life to be at peace. So Bernie put what he called the three tenets tenets of Zen peacemaking as the three, you could say, 
practice vows, principles, to live a life of peace. First is not knowing, second is bearing witness, and third is loving actions to living a life of peace and being one who makes peace, to make peace. This is, of course, something all of us humans, in fact, many traditions, speak of as the highest goal, making peace. In fact, there's many religious traditions greet each other with peace unto you, peace to you. Or he that makes peace for the world should make peace for us, or all sorts of other phrases like that, being making peace. So the first tenet of making peace is not knowing, not knowing. Not knowing has nothing to do with some being dumb or any such thing. But not knowing, as he describes it, is giving up fixed ideas. Fixed ideas about self, fixed ideas about others, fixed ideas about the universe. In a way, always that's our practice because it's always our fixed ideas, some of which we're aware we hold on to and some of which we're not aware, that create trouble for us. Fixed ideas about ourself and what our condition should or should not be, what should or should not happen to us and about all sorts of other people, how they should, should not function. How the world should or should not function. How the weather even should or should not function. Some of you might remember I've spoken about a nice case in the collection called Shoyoroku, or Book of Equanimity, where Vayan, a wandering monk, you could say, comes to a temple and is asked by the master, where are you going? Where are you going? And he says, 
He's asked by his master, the master's name is Di Tsang. It's a Chinese master. My pronunciation is poor, but he says, I'm going around on pilgrimage, foot traveling, visiting temples to further clarify my practice. So, well, he says, going around on pilgrimage. So the master, Di Tsang, asks, what is the purpose of pilgrimage. He says, I don't know. Bayan says, I don't know. Ditsang says to him, not knowing is most intimate. At that, Bayan has a, an awakening an awakening of what and who he is, which allowed him to be at peace. Not knowing. Not knowing is most intimate. See, this not knowing is most intimate, and yet we rarely are intimate with this being at peace, not knowing, because we insist on our fixed ideas, or at least fixed for the moment, when we bump up against the universe and we comment on it. We criticize it, we check it against the way we think it should be or should not be. We refuse to be the intimacy which not knowing allows us to be, which not knowing allows us to face. Of course, there's nothing wrong with knowing. Knowing is intimacy as well. But it's a knowing that we don't hold on to. It's a knowing that's the intimacy of this moment knowing. So, in a way, this not knowing is the state of mind of being this present moment. Many of you are familiar with the dialogue between Bodhidharma, who I earlier mentioned, the founder of Zen in China, his encounter with the Emperor Wu, where first he disabuses the Emperor of the idea that he was going to accumulate all sorts of merit for all of his good deeds. Having done that, the emperor then asks him, what's the fundamental highest truths of Buddha's teaching? And Bodhidharma says, vast emptiness, no holiness. Vast emptiness, you could even say vast emptiness, ongoing changing, if you want to elaborate on this. 
nothing fixed, permanent to accomplish and accumulate. No holiness. Or you could say it another way, no not holiness as well. The emperor is somewhat troubled by this since he had all these ideas about what was holy and what was not, what accumulated merit and what one had to do to get that. Just like Bernie's mentioning fixed ideas or, as we say, caught in self-centered dream, holding to self-centered thoughts. Self-centered thoughts, of course, don't just apply to so-called ourself, but we have self-centered thoughts about how the world should be and how all the beings we encounter or even don't encounter and just hear of should or should not be. So the emperor is somewhat troubled by Bodhidharma's response and he asks who are you in front of me? Who are you? Bodhidharma says don't know. There altogether his expression don't know. His expression of vast emptiness no holiness is concentrated in this being not knowing. Of course, if we hold on to some formula of what being not knowing is, then that becomes another fixed idea, another thing we think is better or worse or we think is not intimacy or is intimacy when we start getting valued in that. Nevertheless, Many Zen teachers have spoken of not knowing. There's a famous Korean master who lived in the United States in the second half of the 20th century and founded what's known as the Quantum School and one of his phrases was, only don't know, don't know. As our attitude and perspective on life, as our way to approach and encounter, only don't know. Of course, we don't want to get stuck there. We have famous Zen master Nanchuan in China who says the way is not in knowing or in not knowing. Knowing is false consciousness. Not knowing is indifference. So we're not talking about that kind of not knowing. If you try to make something into 
not knowing or not understanding and thinking that's it, then we get trapped by it. Then knowing is wonderful, not knowing is wonderful. When you're knowing, just totally knowing, but don't get stuck in knowing. When you don't know, totally don't know. But don't get stuck in not knowing. See? Otherwise it becomes a fixed idea even then. But not knowing, not knowing as the first tenet of peacemaking. Because in order to be at peace, we can't be blocked and trapped and entangled in what we know. doesn't mean we don't know things. If I didn't know anything, I couldn't be speaking English now. I have to know English in order to be able to speak English. If someone calls to you, you know they're calling you if you hear it and you respond. But that isn't the kind of knowing or fixed ideas that we're talking about. Those are just the cause and effect functioning of being alive. Not knowing allows us to be the intimacy of this moment because we're not blocked and hindered by our knowing, by our not knowing. We're not entangled or troubled See, my mind is not at rest. means I'm troubled. Not at peace. And after all, how do we be peace and therefore give peace and share peace and nurture peace? So, the first step in the Zen peacemaker's order is not knowing. The next two are bearing witness and loving actions. So, tomorrow I'll speak a little bit about bearing witness and loving actions. And of course these are Bernie's ways of articulating his deep understanding and practice, and his own particular style of practice. But we also have to know that they're not so different than the four practice principles, not so different from Suzuki Roshi saying, Zen mind, beginner's mind, or all sorts of other ancestors who want to clarify what is it we need to do in order to be able to both be at peace and off of peace, to be intimate as the universe and respond and take care as bodhisattvas whose compassionate function nurtures all being. Otherwise, whether knowing or not knowing, become attachments that are hindrances 
then even not knowing becomes a kind of knowing. See, how do we freely be present, freely function, freely live at peace, and therefore share peace with all? So, I'll stop now, and if you want to bring up something, we can clarify this a little further. If you wish to change your position, please feel free to do so. Yeah? I'll be interested to hear um, what you and Bernie Glassman have to say about bearing witness. Well, It's a phrase that I've heard in in various contexts. Uh I'm curious to hear... Yes. Well, you're, you're, you want to get to tomorrow with that. <laughs> You'll just have to wait. No. Be at peace until then. <laughs> Be not knowing until no, then. No, like a commercial. I'm saying, stay tuned. We're going to hear about it. Same time, same place, tomorrow. Yeah. But you know what? <laughs> but regards that. Com- that. Commercials are nice, but yeah. they also really entice us there. a little. I didn't really want to go there. Um, to, to me, um, but I'll, I'll say this anyway, uh, bearing witness to me would be um, very much akin to telling the truth. Well, why don't we leave you know, that for leave. tomorrow? Yeah. <laughs> but give you something to say until tomorrow. Uh, the other thing I thought of um, when you were talking um, peacemaker, about peace, um, it's kind of an odd thought that came to me, which is not unusual, um, that there's a conjecture in anthropology that during our hunter-gatherer phase as, as humans, um, when strangers met each other, um, in order to signal that they come in peace, they would hold up their hand, show they're not carrying a weapon. Yes. These are their dominant hand, they're not carrying a weapon. Um, and that eventually became what we call a wave. Uh-huh. Wave at each other. And that's what that, the conjecture yes. does. And it makes sense. But my question is, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I've seen images of the Buddha. Yes. Where he's, hold, he's holding up a hand. Is that? Yes, that that's similar. 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 And if you look at the names of that mudra, that's a mudra. You could say that's a mudra of expressing peace. peace. And I've seen symbols of Buddhism expressed as something. Yeah. In, in some sense, you could see in many traditions, in, for instance, in the greeting in Hebrew is Shalom Aleichem, which is peace to you. Peace and peace is wholeness as well. And in Christianity, they speak of Jesus as bringing peace. There's a phrase, a prayer that goes in Hebrew. Which means, um, he who makes peace on high should make peace on us and on all others. Or, which is peace unto you in Arabic. 
you could go on in other traditions, but this is a very human desire, because otherwise, when you encounter others, there's fear, and therefore tension, and therefore you're on guard, and therefore potential for all sorts of violence easily, especially when we're uncertain of their intention. That's what fixed ideas are, too. We tend to misinterpret the world because we're always at fear. We're all, not always, but often have fearful ideas and therefore tend to misinterpret what happens. We misinterpret what it means and therefore it gives rise to anger or greed or fearfulness because we're on the lookout and if we aren't not knowing, if we hold on to what we know and misinterpret the world, then there's snow this morning. Uh Uh-oh, it's going to be terrible out. Uh Uh-oh, I'm going to freeze when I go out. Or, oh no, how could it happen? Or, that person coming down there, what has he got on his side? What does he have on the side? Is he, is he dangerous? Do I have to have my gun ready? Or, Well, that's kind of the point. Yeah. You know, my last thing I'll say is that that's kind of the point. You know, you're expressing the fact that you're coming to this person open and exposed and defenseless. And that's very hard for us to do. Yeah. And we, we set up our defense. We, we close the gate so easily and so often in the face of what we perceive as a threat. But it's not only in terms of us coming to other persons. It's coming to all of life and our own condition. That's right. And coming to ourselves. That's right. It's coming to ourselves. It's even waking up and having a little ache and, oh, it's because of. It means that. It's going to happen thus. And all of a sudden we just create more aches and troubles because we're not able to be here encounter and intimate in this life of the universe, whether it's so-called ourself or so-called outside ourself. And isn't that the only way to really be intimate, is to be open and do I don't, I don't want to say only way. <laughs> that's <laughs> no, that's, that's, way. Too, that's <laughs> too fancy. It's, it's one thing to hypothesize about how we are, and that, but I think what comes to the fact is how we see and how we really act to the situation at the time. It's not what we're thinking about, but it's just how it happens to be and how it comes to. Yeah, and that's what fixed ideas that seem or attitudes or intentions or misinterpretations that we hold on to, they occur almost, that's why we call them reactive habits, almost automatically. It's In a sense, you could say our practice is to start becoming familiar with all these places where we're not at rest, we're not at peace in the midst of 
but rather driven this way and that way by this reactive habit and that reactive belief and this idea and that idea. And we don't even know the idea. We just know the impulse and the reaction. What, what comes to my mind was in this, uh, what was it, uh, this last terrible shooting where the, uh, yeah. the officer Which one? Just, he just yeah. walked yeah. into the... California? Uh, yeah, in California where the officer just walked in there and got shot three or four times. He, he died. That was his reaction. That's what he did. Yeah. He just went in there. He didn't think. That's what his job was. That's what he did. Yeah. I, I didn't read details about it yeah. because it Sashin was already just, just so begun. Right. It's almost like a culmination of what he was uh, at that time, and that's what kind of took him to do that, to, to take the lead, to go in there. Hmm. And he, uh, of course, confronted the, uh, the, uh, the guy with the gun. Yeah. But I, I, I don't, in a sense, you're picking an extreme case which I don't, I don't know anything about because, as I said, I've been in Sashin mode. However, we could, we don't even have to go to those extreme modes. I mean, extreme modes make you think it's something that's out there and, and extreme, and that's not me. But this not knowing and this caught up in self-centered dreams, if I say it in that way, which is fixed ideas or holding to self-centered thoughts, fixed ideas about ourself, about others, about the universe, is what we see occurs over and over in our life, whether we're just sitting still in, in the zendo, whether we're at home, whether we're at work, whether in social situations, as we're present for ourselves, we begin, we notice this. And that's in a part of why this is, call it a tenet or a practice of peacemaking, why this has a long history in certainly in Zen tradition and certainly in all sorts of other traditions. This is this symbol is of not giving fear. or right. mm-hmm. um, fear. It's a habit that in one sense is useful at times, but in another sense is poisonous when, it, when we don't see what's going on and we don't see what we're doing. That's the aspect of fixed ideas that we miss when we hold on to what we know, when we can't, if I say it, take the not knowing stance, not knowing um, approach, or at least the willingness to shine not knowing onto the knowing that's occurring. Um, we can't be with all sorts of circumstances. If we know or in advance what the circumstances are, then we decide that circumstance is okay, this one's not okay. That person I'll be present to and listen. This person I won't be present with. That weather I can go out in. 
this weather I can't go out in. That city I'll go to. This city I won't go to. All of these fixed ideas poison. Mm -hmm. Then you can't make peace. You can't be at peace. If you can't be at peace, you certainly can't make peace among others. You can't engage with them. You can't act lovingly towards them. I, I see what you're saying. I, I agree with what I, I was saying about uh -huh. being open. But sometimes, well, how, how would I say that? Uh, I guess I almost want to say you want to be open, you want to walk that middle path, but when the, the force is adverse, so to speak, you got to kind of walk that middle path and you just kind of, what, you just got to be kind of friendly but not uh, too friendly, so to well, speak. You've still got to go that way. Right? You, you've got to be appropriate to the way the present moment is. So. I almost had considerable experience, as you know, working with prisoners, people with yes. violent histories in penitentiaries. You've done that too, haven't you? Yes. And that, to me, would be a very unique experience, working with people with a, who have succumbed to the violence in their life and are yeah. victims of it in many ways. Nevertheless, it's important, even with people who have such a history, to approach them without, while on one hand you know the history, just like I know how to speak English, on the other hand, you have to be present as they are right now, not as they were. And yet, and yet, you have to do it in a way that's appropriate now. There's a phrase from the koan we wrote a while ago that still comes back to, I don't know why it stuck with me, but it's that um, the lock with no spring uh -huh. wiggles both ways. Like, that's always returning for no yes. reason, really. And I feel like not knowing, for me now at least, I, I almost envision kind of like what you're talking about also, is kind of holding a not knowing within a framework of knowing. Yeah. So I know when I'm cooking... I know what my expectation is. I know the steps to take. I know the recipes. I know how it should turn out. But there, I have to still hold that not knowing of, oh, wait a second. It didn't quite go how I thought it would. Yeah. Well, you, you could take it a step further. When you take a taste of something, in one sense, you have the whole panoply of things that you've tasted in the past that you know that Sugar tastes sweet this way, honey tastes sweet that way, cinnamon tastes this way, cumin tastes that way. You don't have to hold on to all that, and yet that's the cause and effect that comes together as you this moment. And yet, if we can take a sip of the present moment as it is, we can naturally know without being stuck with, oh, that's a terrible taste before we taste it. Oh, that's the taste I want, before we taste it. And we can see how this taste, which is the most intimate, because the taste is in our mouth. It's part of us when we taste something. And it's the same when we encounter people and circumstances. 
It's tasting the universe of them with, of me, of us together. So, did you want to say something before that I miss you? It's dark in here. It's it's getting dark, and I don't always notice. So if if I don't get you, you have to wave your hand more. <laughs> You know, I think my dog, Bella, is a good example of not knowing, peacemaker, uh, open to everybody. Uh-huh. And instead of lifting a hand up, she sticks her tongue out and licks you. <laughs> but, you know, just observing her, it, it, I learn a lot, you mm-hmm. know. And she's just that way. Um, I think I want to share the, the gas station uh-huh. incident that happened yesterday and it, it's kind of a not knowing thing it was a really amazing incident to me I was filling up my car Henry II and this beautiful uh, maroon new Chevy Suburban drove up and some fellow got out you know we were facing this way and it's the first time in my life anyone at the gas station has ever said good morning and I thought wow well, good morning. And then I said to him, you know, I've been admiring, and I was admiring his car. We got in an amazing conversation. He had, uh, I could see he was a Carl doctor, and it said emergency room. And I said, oh, I see you're from Carl. And he went to, you know, close his jacket. I said, well, I do Carl hospice. And we had the most amazing conversation that he wants to now go and work in a veterans hospital and go into the National Guard to get money to pay off his debts and he's telling me about his family. I tell you, we became the best friends and I'm half tempted to try and find out where he lives and see if he and his family would like to come over for pizza. (laughs) Well, why not? That's another way of of sharing. (laughs) Yeah. It was just an amazing moment and I said to him, when he was really talking about this, he hadn't quite made up his mind if he's going to leave Carl, which is, I think, a secure, you know... What, what's this? No, no. We should, we, we, too much? Too much names on the recording. Oh. Well, anyhow, I, um, I said to him, do you accept hugs? Oh, yes. Wonderful. Then he said, I think I'm going to go to the veterans. It was just Uh at the gas station. Uh He'll make a good doctor. And being an emergency room doctor is no fun, I think. Well, it's it's very high pressure. It's difficult. it's different in a sense from what I've heard from a hospitalist is that the emergency room doctors do certain work, but then the patient, so to speak, passes to other doctors yeah. depending upon the condition and what needs. And whereas, for instance, hospitalists are with the, pa- the patient for an extended ongoing time and responsible for their care in that way. Okay. Well. Uh, 
Yes? Oh, okay. Um, I, I just got to thinking this may sound silly to many of you, but as an artist, uh-huh. um, and when I'm painting, yes. um, there's a lot of shifting between knowing and not knowing. Mm-hmm. But mostly it's not knowing. Mm-hmm. You're in a, I'm in a sea of choices, uh-huh. selections, which only if I can be very present can I somehow open up. But very often that doesn't happen because I'm thinking about, oh, what a Yes. Whatever, whatever we're doing. Yes. Gas station or yes. In the studio. Yes. Or, and we'll. I'll talk more tomorrow about. Well, I was just going to do the second and leave the third for another time, but I'll attempt, since we don't have a third day of sashinu, to at least touch on the third and then send us off with that into our. Ongoing but life practice. Yeah. Bearing witness, loving, and then loving action. So, I will stop now. <laughs> <laughs> and we will continue. Thank you. And thank you for allowing this both honoring of Bernie's life and this ongoing practice, which is articulated by different teachers in different ways. And that's our, both our opportunity and the gift given to us. Thank you.